You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I am Brad Dukunda-Clark. I connect interim talent with NHS leaders, and I am your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. So in terms of evolution, we're a leading supplier of digital and analytics talent into the NHS. Our goal is to help NHS organisations realise their true potential. And how do we do that? We do that by providing the professionals needed to deliver key digital and analytics programmes. We believe in building relationships and sharing insights. And that's why we've created a true community space within the NHS and why we're on the podcast today. Um, My name is Brad DeCunder-Clark. I'm a senior business manager and the lead for the Midlands region. Um, I'm going to go to Chris. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Chris Bealey. Uh, I'm a data scientist. I work in uh, Nottinghamshire Healthcare NHS Trust, and I'm also the uh, the co-chair of the technical advisory group of the NHSR community. Thanks, Chris. And Mark, would you like to introduce yourself? My name's Mark Thurston. I'm a consultant radiologist. I work at uh, University Hospitals Plymouth NHS Trust. Um, I've got a strong interest in, in Python um, and using it for quality improvement and research. Um, specifically, computer vision projects is is one of my main interests. Obviously, in radiology, we have a lot of um, pixel data. Amazing. And Mary, last but not least, introduce yourself for us. Thanks, Brad. I'm Mary Manuel. I'm one of the co-founders of the NHS Python community, and I work in economics and strategic analysis at NHS England. Amazing. And also just a big thank you guys for for joining me today and discussing this topic. Um, I'm going to kick us off with our first question, which is what actually are the NHSR and NHS Python communities? Well, I'll I'll perhaps jump in just for this sort of historical thing, because we were first, sorry to um, to draw that one, but but, um, it's not a problem. Um, So the NHSR community, I think we started, I think formally, I think in March of 2018 from memory. Um, And it's... um, It's basically a group of people. It's not like a big sort of snazzy thing with a lot of funding. We did have a small amount of seed funding from the Health Foundation, but we haven't up till now had a lot of kind of um, lots of people and, you know, lots of important people backing us and lots of funding, all this kind of thing. It's more just a group of people in the NHS um, who use um, it. We started off with our we're trying to embrace more and more methods now. And lots of people in our community, including me, use use other things such as Python in our code. And we're very friendly with the um, with the PyCom community <laughs> as well. Um, so, yeah, basically, we're a group of people who we use our or similar tools and we uh, everything we do is open. So we have a lot of training. All the materials are open. Uh, all the training and the conference is free to um, UK health and social care staff. And we do a lot of um, work uh, giving people skills, training people and also encouraging people to share what they've done, uh, to share their achievements, and in particular to share uh, their analytic, analytic code with an open license. That's a really important part of NHSR, is encouraging people to, to kind of share good practice and open up the code. Amazing. And Mary, did you want to tell us about the, the Python community in particular? Yeah, no, definitely. And yeah, Chris is right, I was first, but... Uh, we did come, I think, three years later. So the NHS Python community was founded in April 2021. I'm just going to define Python because I find that the, the first question I always get when I say like what what I do at the Python community, they're like, what on earth is Python? So Python is um, the most popular programming language in the world. It's a free and open source programming language. It's general purpose, so it can be used in a loads of applications such as data science, data engineering, web development, um, app development, or using uh, using it to create medical devices. And 
the NHS Python community itself is a community of over 700 um, people made up of data scientists, developers, clinicians, academics, etc., um, who exist to champion the use of Python programming language and open code in the NHS, basically. And we have a kind of a, a few different principles and purposes. One of them is to make coding more accessible. I think a lot of people find coding very, very intimidating. And what we try to do is we work with NHSR to create resources for free so people can upskill in this language. We also do a big part about promoting um, access to these tools. So you're probably going to hear this quite a lot in this podcast, but there is currently insufficient access to these kinds of technologies in the NHS just because of sort of IT policy. So one thing we try to do is make sure there's the right infrastructure in place at a policy level to help people on the ground actually use these languages. Another thing we do is we celebrate contributions. We have show and tell. We're going to be at the NHSR conference. We promote cross collaboration with different internal, external private public companies to build open source projects for free. We share best practice. And one of the main things we do is we try to promote a culture shift in leadership about promoting this kind of open source technology. Amazing. And Mark, we've got two amazing definitions of exactly what these communities are. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here and say, what do these communities actually mean to you from a clinician perspective? Um, so from my point of view, really, the communities have been excellent at building traction um, and connecting people that are otherwise using um, Python and may not know that that other people are using it um, and sharing sharing good practice um, and also kind of building profile a little bit because I think sometimes um, there's been a sort of um, a bit of a reluctance to embrace open source in the NHS and um, possibly a significant open uh, opportunity cost um, because no one thinks that anyone else is using it. Um, so I think the communities are really important from that point of view. Amazing. In terms of the next question, so why are the communities such as, as PyCom and the R community important? And we can use the hands up function for this. I mean, I, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna start first. So go for it. The need for the Python community grew a lot during COVID. So there was already an existing NHSR community, but there was there was nothing for Python. And during COVID, there was a lot of analysts and data scientists across the country who had to do very sophisticated, quite novel, very rapid analysis to do with COVID, to manage capacity, but they had no support infrastructure. They couldn't ask anyone any questions. And so they were, they were kind of stuck. And so that need grew and grew. And over time, me and my colleagues, um, Ariba Zuber, Craig Shanton and Alex Chun, we decided to make a, a Python community to create that environment. I will never forget when we first started PyCom, I got an email from somebody to say, I'm really grateful a community like this exists. I'm the only person who knows how to use Python in my entire trust. So in the, her entire organisation, she was the only person who was there who could actually use Python. But now what she can do is she can just hop on Slack and ask 700 people any questions she likes. So I think fundamentally these communities, because they're so grassroots, because they're community driven, are there to support people in developing themselves and developing themselves at work and the analysis they need to do. But the big, big thing that we try to do is having all of this momentum from NHSR and NHS Python is promote that massive culture shift that allows us to actually use these tools to create these innovative technologies. And I think that is the, the main piece that we try to push. Amazing. And Chris, do you want to go next? No, I mean, I always tell this story. So I apologize if anyone's heard, anyone listening has heard it to tell this story before, but I learned R quite a long time ago. I was using R, I think, back in um, 
maybe 2009, 2010, um, in the NHS. And it was it, it was totally and completely miserable. I, t- I really recognise that story that Mary's just told about being the only person um, that, that knows Python in an organisation. <clears throat> and I think the thing about the NHS is, I think people often think that, that the NHS is a sort of big, one big organisation. We all kind of help each other. And I'm afraid that's not true at all. It's getting better in more recent times, but actually for quite a long time, we weren't really supposed to cooperate between organizations at all. So I always say, I think one of the big um, one of the big reasons why NHSR exists and similarly why NHS uh, PyCom exists is to allow people to give people permission to to cooperate in those ways. And we cooperate in all sorts of ways. So we cooperate by, as Mary says, by like helping on Slack and, you know, you can get a lot of very expert people to help on our Slack in 10 minutes. Um, but also gives us permission to to train each other, gives us permission to to um, produce training that we put in the open. It gives us permission to um, produce things together. One of the big things, I'm a big sort of open source, not really. I might get onto that a bit more later, possibly, depending on what we talk about. Um, but the, the thing that I always say is that there are, there are communities of, of technology people who build stuff just spontaneously. They don't have like committees and funding and all the approval processes. They just build stuff together. Um, and I really think if we if we were able to do that in the NHS, we were able to harness that kind of enthusiasm and that kind of uh, you know open collaboration, that would be really powerful. But we don't, and I think NHSR gives people um, it gives first people gives people permission to do it. I think the other thing it does is it shows other people doing it. So I know that my team is being used. I've been told this many times. People will say to their boss, "Can I do such and such a thing?" And their boss will say, "No, you can't do that. You're not allowed." And they'll point at my team, who are, and we're doing it absolutely open. We do blogs, we do talks, we do podcasts, you name it, we're all over the place, or we try to be. And they say, well, they're doing it. And that is, I mean, it seems silly, really. It's like going to your dad and asking for the, you know, uh, and saying, oh, well, your boy down the road's got one. But it, it human, I think organizations do work on that level, doesn't it? Is that once someone else in the NHS has done it, it becomes sort of okay. Um, and NHSR, I think, is just a massive example of that. It's all just saying, look, you know, this is okay, it's safe, it's not breaking any IT problems, we're all doing it, we're all sharing, we're all helping, and, you know, look how powerful it is. Great point, Chris. Mark, we'll come to you. Well, I think those are really good points, actually, and I think it does does validate that these um, really powerful tools are kind of are in widespread use and other people are using them successfully. Um, I think when you, in the pre-community days, um, you almost kind of felt like, you were going out on a limb, you were taking a risk, um, you were using something that's untested. Um, you'd ask around in your IT departments, big IT departments, and there'd be a few people that knew a little bit of Python or maybe had done some at a previous employer, but it wasn't easy to connect with other people and it wasn't easy to say, well, I did it. one of the um, issues I think with um, installing new tools and using new tools is who do you get help from when you when when you don't know what you're doing, especially if you're by yourself in, a, in an institution. And actually PyCom has really sort of provided that um, reassurance that you can say to your management, um, well, actually I'm, I'm linked in with PyCom, I'm able to ask on Slack. Um, I know other people have come across similar similar issues and they, they've solved them in similar ways. And um, and it's really a, a way of sharing. And, and that in itself does provide um, quite a lot of support to people who, um, who are uh, otherwise doing something which would be considered quite new for the NHS. Good point, Mark. Does anyone have anything else they wanted to add, you know, from some of the, the answers that we've given there? Yep. We can move on to the next question then. So why is there such a demand for tools like R and Python? Who would like to go first? I'm not sure if you're leaving your, your hand up, Mark, to, to answer that one. Um, I will answer that. So uh, that, that was that was a, a hand that was left up, but nonetheless, um, I think the <laughs> tools are just, there's a few things really why I, I prefer using R and Python. I think 
they're obviously fun to use. I mean, um, uh, for anyone who understands the sort of history of Python, really, it was designed as a, an easy to pick up programming language, um, but that hasn't really held it back. There's lots of the, the APIs are really intuitive. Um, I'm sorry, Chris, I know you're a big R affectionado and I'm, I'm more on the Python side of things, um, but the, the huge community, uh, they're fun to use. There's a great speed of progress. There's lots of libraries out there that are just moving a lot faster than um, than you might get with some commercial alternatives. Um, and you don't have this feeling that you might get hit by vendor lock-in in a few years time when you've really put a lot of time and effort into to trying to to use a tool and, and you feel that you've, you've almost got that kind of backup of the you know it's going to be open source and the license is, is going to stop someone um, trying to, uh, to to kind of put the brakes on your project through licensing. Good point, Mark. Chris? Um, yeah, well, it's interesting you should mention the difference between R and Python. Actually, let's just quickly just, um, I might just touch on that, actually. I heard that Hadley Wickham, who's a sort of great um, uh, R programmer, probably, probably the sort of the most, um, the sort of most, uh, what you call famous, the biggest one, one of the most influential ones, um, said about R recently, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't know what the age rating on this podcast is. He said that it, it, was, it was a great language for getting stuff done. Um, and I do think R and Python, I think um, they, they do have a kind of, um, they, they do fit quite neatly together. I mean, I'm actually using them together in a, in a, in a, a particular application at the moment. Um, I think the thing about R is that it's a little bit easier to learn. And I think it's a little bit easier to do certain things, particularly statistics. Um, but I think the thing about Python is that it's incredibly fast and flexible and powerful. Um, and it, it, it has, as Mary was mentioning at the beginning, it, has, it actually has quite a, a wider range of applications. So people are writing websites and all stuff like that. People aren't really doing that in R. So I think they, I think they're quite, they're, they're excellent bedfellows. Really, and I like to make that point wherever I can because you still, to this day, if you go on LinkedIn, which I try and avoid doing at all costs, you will still find people slinging mud at each other trying to decide which is better R and Python, which I do think is a completely dead end topic. Um, anyway, to answer the question, um, I think the thing about, I mean, I've been taught, I've started to call in things like this code first data science, which is something that I've stolen from the, the POSIT Corporation, who used to be our studio. Um, and I think the reason why people do code first data science basically is because it's better. It, it, it's as simple as that, really. It, it's it's cheaper and better. Um, so again, the other story that I always tell, which I'm going to retell, is the reason, well, I used to use R for stats as well, actually, but the reason why I started using it for reporting in NHS was because we had this incredibly long, complicated survey. And the, the write-up, I think, was about maybe, I don't know, 150 pages long. And it took, you know, literal weeks to, to produce it. Um, and I just I thought one day, I thought, this is, it must be a better way of doing this. Surely in this day and age, there is a better way of doing this. And it was, and there was, it was art. So I went away and, and, and taught myself. And this is long before all the fancy things we have now down with, with Markdown and Quarto. It was all long before all that. Um, and I took a process that took a person like a week and a half and I made it take um, sort of, you know, 10 minutes. Um, and since I did that and since that those kind of things have been available, things have got better and better and better and better. Um, so I think that's the first thing to say is that the reason why I use this tool isn't because it's I don't use it because it's free. I use it because it's better. Um, but I think the other reason why it's so powerful is because we can share. And obviously that's the thing is that the NHS, it's public money. We all should be cooperating, whether we are or, we, or we're not. And using those tools, you know, a lot of the problems that I solve are totally generic. So my big area is patient experience and particularly text uh, text bits of patient experience. So we have a lot of survey data. Every trust in the country has a lot of survey data. That is a totally, totally generic problem. Every provider trust in the country faces that exact problem. And if I solve it in my trust, which I'm trying to, I really want to, you know, to allow everyone else to use it too. And if you use other other methods, 
Um, it, it's really not so easy to do that. It's not so easy to repurpose them. It's not so easy to understand them. It's not so easy to share them. Um, so, you know, that I think that's the other really, really important part of it is that particularly for, you know, we're not some sort of secret cadre of geeks trying to like leverage an advantage without, you know, we're not, we don't work in finance. We want to share, we want to help, we want to collaborate. We're not trying to get a competitive advantage. So the, the use of these tools for me in the NHS is an absolute no brainer, just, you know, also because of that. A really good point, Chris. I think in particular, you know, the NHS does need to work on cross-organisation collaboration and you, you hit the nail on the head really with, with linking into that. So that's, that's great. Mary, would you like to give your, your thoughts on that question? Yes. So there are a couple of reasons why there is such a need and actually a demand for R and Python. And I think it's kind of unique in a case that there are almost, um, there's probably cumulatively like over a thousand people in, in both communities um, championing these languages. And people might think, oh, why is there an obsession with programming languages? You know, that's that's kind of strange, but it's actually, it actually like underlies a very, very important reason. So as Chris said, the NHS is funded primarily, primarily through public money. And like sadly, a lot of what we do in the NHS is actually very, very private. You know, a lot of the algorithms that we have, a lot of the data science modeling that we do, um, it's not necessarily shared with the public. And it's like my personal belief. And also uh, there's a moral case for this, that surely the people paying for public services should also be able to access and see the algorithm, the code that's used, being used to analyze their services and analyze their records. That's the basic thing. The other thing is that there's recently been a Goldacre review. So this was an independent government review of uh, basically the use of data and open source tech in resource, in, in research and in health. And um, I've got this quote from Ben Goldacre. I'm trying to find it. I think I'll just paraphrase it. Um, but he, he basically in the report said it's absolutely vital if analysts need, need to be able to use computational data science languages like Python. And the critical word there is need, not want, but need. This is because to meet the challenges, the, the plethora of health challenges in the NHS that they face, we need to be able to meet that challenge with having the sophisticated tooling to come up with innovative technology to meet that. And without access these, to these technologies and resources and training, we're not going to be able to do that as an NHS. Great point, Mary. Great quote as well. Um, so in terms of the next question, what we wanted to do essentially was was to take the last question a little bit further. I feel like we've delved into it slightly already, but I do, you know, this is an NHS specific podcast. It's a healthcare specific podcast. I'm going to ask this anyway and see if we can take it that little step further. Um, so why is there an increase in demand for R and Python within healthcare slash NHS? Chris? Well, yes. So, um, I mean, the Goldacre report is obviously uh, quite a, an important um, thing in this, but it, it is it comes in a long line of reports. And I remember actually I went to I went to um, a training program actually some years back. I think it must have been maybe about five or six years ago. And they were talking about some of these issues. Um, and I I remember I got a bit cross. I kind of stood up and got a bit cross and said that, it, you know, I'd, I'd heard it all before kind of thing. Um, because we have been hearing this same message over and over again. Really, I think the Goldacre Review has has, has moved it on and has, has, has given a blueprint for change. Um, but this basically the idea that's been promulgated for quite some time is that the NHS has an extremely large amount of data. And obviously, because it's a, it's a single provider system, the data is very 
you know, it theoretically is very well organized and very, you know, it's like it's a cradle to grave data system. In practice, people who know who work in NHS obviously will know that the data is actually sort of fragmented and all over the place. But there is that possibility of uniting it. And the amount of analysis that's done on that data is actually very, very poor. Most of the most of the work that's done in the NHS with data is um, not of high value. It doesn't use particularly sophisticated methods. It doesn't answer particularly sophisticated questions. And it often isn't, there's a, there's a phrase they use in the strategy, um, uh, strategic analysis. Um, very little of it is strategic analysis, mostly done just to kind of keep various regulators and CCGs and other stakeholders happy, counting the percentages of things, just counting stuff, basically. That's what I call it, counting stuff. Um, but there's been for some time loads and loads and loads of reports that I could go through and cite them all saying the same thing that we need to we need to get better. We need to, to, to learn better skills. We need to have people who are more engaged in, in uh, answering better questions. We need to, we need to managers and other uh, non-analysts to be asking better questions. And we need to, to use those questions and that analysis to actually make decisions and, and have a, like a data, um, a data oriented thing. I think it's a shame really. I mean, I've never worked it outside the NHS, so I don't really know what it's like, but the impression I get is that there are some organizations that are extremely good with data and the reason why that is is because they can make they can make a profit out of it that's the thing they want to be good with data because they want to segment their customers better or they want to you know streamline the process all this kind of thing and we don't seem to have that that kind of really um that vigor in the nhs everything just seems to be more just about kind of like are things vaguely okay yes they are to carry on um rather than really wanting to get the heart of things and these methods and these ideas, um, the previous reports haven't come out quite so strongly, I don't think, in terms of like open source programming and languages and all that kind of thing. But it's that idea of basically improving the kind of the analytical capacity of the NHS. And I think certainly using R and Python and using the kind of statistical and machine learning methods that that, that allows you to, 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 to do um, is a big part of it. And there's loads of stuff in the Goldacre review basically saying, um, you know, Excel is not going to answer all of your questions for you. You know, there are people building incredibly complicated models with Excel because they don't have anything else. And firstly, it's very slow and error prone. And secondly, actually, you can't, there are certain models that can't be built. So I know there was one example of a demand and capacity model um, and they just didn't build the whole thing because it just it would break Excel. It didn't, you know, Excel is not designed to run demand and capacity models. So they just, they can't have to cut it down. Um, so it, it allows you to do um, kind of, you know, bigger and more interesting things, basically. Good point, Chris. Mark, would you like to go next? Well, I think that's a really good point, actually, about the limitations of Excel and how ubiquitous it is um, in use across the NHS and how a lot of the times it's holding us back. I mean, it, it can be really, really hard to get um, uh, analyst or clinician access to databases um, to structure your data in, in a way um, that, that, that's sustainable um, and can be used moving forward uh, for, for analysis and for for essentially for improvements to direct patient care. Um, and I'd, everyone's got a slightly different idea of things, but I think the thing that that's holding us up really is 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 the level of um, skills um, really that that, um, that we have across uh, in, in general. Most people are using Excel because they've always done it that way. Um, and it's very diff difficult to do anything anything else um, and therefore it's difficult to learn new things and it's difficult to take forward new ideas. Um, we do use Excel um, for things where it really shouldn't be used. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that 
organizations in both the pr private sector and public sector have, have similar problems but um actually by getting more people interested in using python and and um, understanding simple programming and data structure concepts um we will be able to i think address some of the issues that ben goldacre mentions um, and are well described amongst academics people using um excel when they should be using databases for an example chris i think you just wanted to follow up on that yeah i was just going to jump back in just um I just wanted to make, um, again, a point that I often try to make. I've got about 10 different things, basically. I'll just try and say them everywhere. So here goes. Um, I think some people are put off because it's just um, um, what Mark said about, um, you know, people people using Excel because that's always how they've done. I think there's a sort of a myth, I think, that I try to bust everywhere I go, where using R and Python is sort of considered very sort of technical and difficult and kind of off-putting. And it's something that, that's not for everybody. Um, and the argument I always make, I mean, I, I must say, um, you know, I, I mean, I do, Python is quite an easy language to, to learn. I do think R is slightly easier. Um, I think they're both within um, within the grasp of, of any analyst. The, the point I always make is that very often the systems that people have, have built with Excel are just as complicated, if not more complicated, as, as, as a similar R thing. I think people kind of think about R and Python analytics as being equivalent to kind of, I don't know, you know, like writing a computer game or building a massive banking finance, you know, like there are obviously people doing incredibly clever things with computers, but I don't do clever things with computers all day. Um, I do pretty simple things with computers because as I mentioned earlier, R is a good language of getting stuff done. So I just want to just reassure anyone who's listening to this, who maybe does work analytically, who's using yourself thinking, oh, well, I can't do that. It's not for me. Um, it, it, it's really not true. I've really, I, I, I have a strong belief that any analyst can learn this stuff. R is not all that difficult, particularly, and this coming back to the value of community, if you've got a helpful soul over your virtual shoulder on Slack. I mean, as I mentioned before, I used to use R back in the bad old days. Um, and it was it was really hard. I remember I lost about a week just to try and import some dates, um, which are notoriously difficult. But the thing is, they're not notoriously difficult if you've got some friendly person somewhere to say, oh, no, you don't want to do that. You just want to just do the string the other way and, it will, and then it will work out fine. So if you've got someone to get you over those bumps, um, then I think it's not a problem. And that, again, that that's the value of the community is just to show people um, you know, it's not an army of geeks, basically. It's just normal people who've had a bit of help and a bit of space and time to learn how to use these tools. Amazing. I think we're going to go back to Mark. It's almost like a game of tennis, this. Well, it's just, just a bit further on from what Chris was saying. I think it can be really daunting to, to, to use Python or R for the first time. Um, and I think sometimes it's easy to forget how how hard it is, something simple like formatting a date using a, a string specifier. Um, but I think that's the huge value of the NHS PyCom community. Um, and the reason why people use Excel is because it's easy, it's accessible, you can open it and you can basically intuitively work out what's going on. Um, but I think having more people around that are, are, have taken a bit of time to uh, invested a bit of time to to, to get up to speed uh, with some of the the basic com concepts and you can you can do useful things with Python in an afternoon. Um, after you've had a bit of chance to play. I think having more, more people who've been prepared to give it a go um, would be great. Um, and I would encourage anyone who's thinking of, of trying to develop their career and develop their skills in that direction, because it is a real investment to reach out to the PyCom community, to join the Slack group, um, and to kind of, you know, there are people out there that can help you um, move forward and, and, and really um, push forward your skills. and. Um, you, before you know it, you'll be the person that, that other people are coming to ask um, uh, advice um, about. 
um, particular tools, it doesn't take long, um, but it's that initial step up that can be really hard. And I think Chris really well describes how, how it can be uh, several hours worth of frustration just down the drain if you you know when you first start but it's not time wasted and and the PyCon community is excellent I mean the, the group is is really good really good point Mark and um, you know for probably not going to be the last time on this session I think it's great that we are doing probably shout out to anyone that is listening to join these relevant communities the Python community and the R community if you're certainly looking to utilize these skill sets it may seem daunting at first but definitely do so and you'll get the help that you need um mary can we go to you yeah definitely i think i think very good points have been made and i just want to say like personally i do not have a degree i do not have any sophisticated academic background um but i am one of the co-founders of the python community and i hope that anyone who's listening helps you realize that you absolutely do not need to be an expert i don't think there's such a thing as an expert in these coding languages these coding languages are always improving sometimes changing so um, just forget the idea in your head you have to be an expert as long as you know enough python or coding or have enough coding literacy to be able to do what you need for your job and challenge yourself a little bit more i think that's all you need i think one thing that i've really agreed on is the education or skills element and there is a real risk to the nhs if it's not upskilling its analysts to, to understand Python or R or having that, that basic coding literacy, literacy, which is that we have, as an NHS, a extreme, I say extreme, dependence on consultants and external organisations and consultancies to basically we're outsourcing our technical work to them. We give them um, an ask, they do it in a couple of weeks and they give us back this product that we've asked for, but the actual underlying technology, the code, the algorithms is a black box because we um, in those teams do not have the coding literacy or basic skills to be able to fact check, interrogate or understand what these consultancies are doing and as a result we can't maintain these technologies we can't add improvements and if things go wrong we don't know where to go so i think there is a real important risk that can be um, exacerbated if we don't have enough underlying coding literacy in the nhs that knowledge is almost taken away isn't it once that consultant leaves the your organizations your respective organizations anyway um, we'll go to Chris next. I think you wanted to, to sort of follow up on that. Yeah, I just wanted to just, um, I really like Mary's point about kind of where she's come from and, you know, um, the fact that she's founded the, the PyCon community. So I'm, I, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not a very good example of this because I do have a, a degree and I am a, a self-confessed geek. I've always been fascinated by computers as, as a child. So I can't really use myself as an example. However, someone in my team who will never hear this because she doesn't listen to podcasts um, is one of the most important people in, in the NHSR community. And I always say she is the, the 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 literal expert in the whole country on teaching people in NHSR. Um, and her background is philosophy. Um, and she's so kind of technologically literate that she can barely work a smartphone. Um, so, and I think she's a real, but she's an exceptionally good data scientist and she's an exceptionally good community member and trainer. And I think her story is, is a really powerful one to show um, that she, you know, she got interested in art, not because she was a kind of, you know, geek like I am, um, but because she could tell that it would do the things that she wanted it to. And um, she, I mean, she learned it very well herself. She did get a bit of help from me because I happened to meet her near the beginning of the journey. And 
Uh, her journey with her actually started at the same time as the NHSR community, so she got a bit of help with there as well. Um, but, you know, from a degree in philosophy, she's navigated beautifully to the point now where she um, is doing lots and lots and lots of very, very useful, um, you know, useful things for the team, you know, an extremely good data scientist. And as I say, she's still not a geek. She, honestly, she her smartphone is a running joke in the team that she really doesn't quite know how to operate it. Um, so I think that's a really good example of how, you know, it's 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 for everybody. So I just want to kind of emphasize that point. Really, really good story, Chris. Um, we'll go on to the next question now. Um, so what are the cultural challenges that you've faced with in trying to drive forward the use of these tools? Who would like to go first? Go with Chris. Right. Well, I'm going to get some some reputation points from AFA straight away because I'm going to plug some work they've done recently. AFA, that's the Association of Professional Healthcare Analysts. Um, they've just done a, a recent piece of work um, around CPD um, and their findings basically are, I mean, you know, they'll be of no surprise to anybody, but it's very useful to have the, the you know, the data. Um the analysts in the NHS don't get a lot of CPD. And this sort of relates to what I was saying earlier about how the NHS is is very consumed with counting things and kind of running a ruler over things very roughly, but never bothers to kind of do any more detailed analysis or rarely bothers to do more detailed analysis. Um, so I think the big cultural barrier for me would be um, just around... Um, you know, what expectations do we have around people? What expectations do we have for an analyst? Um, analysts don't feel empowered to dig deeper. You know, when people ask them questions, I think very often they're expected to just give the answer 17 and then move on to the next thing. They're not really expected to kind of reframe the problem and try and ask questions more around. They're not really being asked to do that and they're not encouraged to do that. I think often they are frightened of um, making mistakes. The NHS is, I would say, the, the, it's funny, the NHS, because the NHS, it it, do, it does sorts of lots of different things, isn't it? So I feel like the rules that govern my behaviour are the same rules that govern people who are doing kind of brain surgery. So when you're doing brain surgery, it's really important, I'm assuming, I don't know anything about brain surgery, that you don't make any mistakes. You know, you can't be kind of trying things and, oh, that didn't really work. And, that's not how it is. And I feel like they same, same, that same culture applies to what I'm doing. And I often find myself in conversations where I just say, let's just have a go. Let's just get the data. We'll just, we're not going to lose it. We're just going to just put it in a thing, run it around a few times and see what comes out. Um, and there, there's a sort of, there's a big cultural um, reluctance to do that. And the other big cultural reluctance, it's something which I feel quite strongly about is, and I think Mary touched on it briefly as well, is just the lack of transparency. Um, I mean, there have been some, there's been some real horror stories in the NHS over the years that we've all read about in the newspapers about a lack of transparency. Um, and obviously that that's a separate thing in itself, but just this day-to-day this -day idea that the public shouldn't know what we're up to, shouldn't know what algorithms are running, shouldn't know what the metrics are, shouldn't know. Um, and I think, you know, the, the power dynamics have changed, you know, patients are getting more involved um, charitable organizations are getting more involved i think the nhs is slowly kind of losing its power base it's losing ability to say i'm a doctor i did it this way you can't ask questions let's just move on and it's more coming to a point where we, we need to be more open we need to be describing what we're doing um and i think that's a big cultural barrier um so i draw a lot of in inspiration from from the tech industry which I think is a great irony, really. So, for example, Meta, the, the owners of Facebook, open sourced this amazing, well, actually, I don't really like it all that much, but it's a nice package, the profit package for forecasting. I don't find it works very well for my data, um, So, which is amazing. And it's and they've got like an R and Python and the documentation is right, you know, all parallel, and it's all wonderful. 
Um, but we think of Meta as being this sort of like you know, corporate kind of, you know, demon. Um, and yet they're doing lots of really cool things, sharing. And, you know, Microsoft makes um, contributes to the Linux kernel and their share. You know, there's all these big corporations doing all this incredibly kind of warm, cuddly sharing type stuff. And yet the NHS, it, you know, even though it's all public money, it's, it's quite the reverse. And they're like, no, this is mine. So you've got all these high profile people, especially when they've got university contracts. I could name a few names, which I won't. Um, and they do something and it's theirs. It's like, no, this is mine. I, I wrote it. You can't have it. Um, which is, you know, and that's, as I say, that's, I think, a cultural thing that's existed for a long time. And, I, you know, and I think we're, we're the, the communities and the people in them are starting to challenge that those kind of that, that culture. I think, I think, Chris, you're absolutely right. And there's something to be said about incentives. And what you were saying was essentially um, sometimes to have a competitive advantage as a doctor, as a team, you have an incentive to keep things a secret, keep them for your team. But I think what our communities try to do is incentivize and reward people for doing the opposite, which is sharing. And actually, the more you share, the more you're rewarded. And I think that is a psychological shift um, that underpins the cultural shift in the, in the NHS that's becoming more and more important. Really good point. Mark, is there anything you want to add on that? Um, not really, but I think the point that um, Mary was trying to make earlier of, of, of um, people afraid to do things differently and afraid to just have a go um, with their first line of Python code and afraid to make mistakes is, is a big barrier to entry. I think there's a belief that we just want something that a vendor has designed and comes out as perfect and, and isn't going to have any errors. And I think um, anyone who's worked with, with with technology for a while will know that there's no such thing as as, as something with no errors and, and no potential for human um, error, um, you know, whether that's whatever business process we're talking about. But I think also the other thing um, with regards to incentive, I think it can be really hard to get the time to spend um, learning new tools, um, upskilling yourself um, and, and, and for professional development for learning R, learning Python. Um, it's easy just to do it the, the, the same way that you've always done it because you're not given any extra time to learn. Um, and the incentives financially as well for the works, workforce to kind of drive professional development and get people learning and, 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 and see the value of, of what can be achieved if you've got all these additional skills um sometimes that that doesn't um the, the, that those those incentives just aren't there Chris, i think we you want to come back to that yeah so speaking of it i like all this talk about incentives i think that's a really good point i was just going to say i think the thing that i again try to promote wherever i go is i want to incentivize people to 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 be open um and it relates to the point that mark was just making as well by not trusting them if they aren't open i think that's that's the question that i get we know that they're like if you look at the the research people are way ahead on this. If you look at people like the Turing way, they're very interested in reproducible research and stuff. The data analysis and software and all this kind of stuff, it has mistakes. There's absolutely, there's so much evidence on this. It, 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 and it's it's really important. And I think the research community are taking this really seriously. And we haven't up till now. Um, and I try and really do that. If someone doesn't want to tell me what their methodology is, then honestly, I, I, I don't trust them. And I, and I don't think, well, I think we should, we need to cultivate a culture of basically, if this work is so good then you know you should be able to show it to us and i think um you know we've paid it's again to do with like power structures and, and culture and stuff again i think in the past the nhs has paid these kind of big flashy consultancies and it's just a complete back box black box and they just say oh it's this or whatever but then when you look what they've done it's this sort of big mess of excel you know we're, we're paying all this money and they've got this very sleek kind of brochures and everyone's got an expensive watch and it all it seems very kind of um credible 
Um, but actually, it's not. If you peel that away, actually, it's not credible at all. It's far more credible to have someone um, who's it's all just right there, you know, like in the world around them safely. It's it's all absolutely inspectable. So if you're like, well, I think open safety is a bit rubbish. I don't think it's working properly. They're like, well, prove it. There it is. There's the code. Have it. Have a go. Um, and I think that's that's really 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 important. We've got to stop just taking people's word for it. That's that that's another thing. Um, as I say, related to the NHS culture I was talking about before. That's another thing that's just got to stop. We've got to start kind of interrogating kind of what people have done and why and how. Excellent points there from everyone. Um. I suppose this is a friendly R versus Python debate for the next question. <laughs> but what are the strengths of each tool? Who would like to go first? There are strengths and there are strengths of each language. And actually, I use both Python and R. I had to learn R because I work in economics team and to do quality econometrics and statistics kind of had to use R because it's got sophisticated libraries and tools to do that kind of work. But when I work with my data science team, everyone uses Python because it's got it's basically made for machine learning and data science and more like deep learning, NLP, that kind of thing. So both languages have their strengths. And actually, as sort of like dual linguists in that way, I, I see the value of, of knowing when to apply each one. And I think the problem with Python, and this is like double edged sword, is Python can do almost almost everything. It can it can do stats, but it's, it might not be the best of it best at it but I think about Python is in Python the hard thing is knowing what not to learn um, it's almost got too many applications where it's in intimidating everyone and actually if you go on the internet look up a Python tutorial um, it might not be applicable for you at your job at the NHS because it's more about software engineering so it's about knowing what to learn and what not to learn but yeah I use both and I think those are the key strengths. Good point. I'll come to Mark next. Well, first of all, I say I think they're both excellent languages, um, but it kind of depends on which one you learn first, in my experience. Um, I'm a I'm a strong um, Python advocate um, because I think it's a good, very versatile program language with lots of libraries that can allow you to do. You're not limited in terms of functionality, um, and I really like that most APIs in Python are very intuitive, whereas I think sometimes R, R can be quite superficially quite easy to learn but once you start getting into classes and um, different class types and various um, complexities some of the APIs aren't that consistent it's not you have to go to the doc I find myself going to the documentation quite a bit more in R than than, than Python whereas um, maybe it's it's easier to learn to start with but I think I think Python um, would, would be my that's my first choice but I think R is is excellent as well in summary, I mean, Python's really a, a, program, a full programming language with stats bolted on, whereas ours is a very sophisticated statistics tool with, with some programming features. Um, Good point. And Chris, we'll come to you last. Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent summary of uh, the, the um, Python is a programming language, some stats features bolted on, I think. Um, so I have used both. And as I say, I've got a project which is, which is sort of bilingual. Um, so I think that really illustrates, you know, that they both have a role. Um, I think the thing about R is, well, the thing about both is I think, and I think Mary alluded to this, it really depends. It's the ecosystem, really. I don't think anyone is really using R because it's a great language. Um, R is kind of quite a funny language. So computer scientists generally don't like R because R was developed by statisticians and it shows, that's what they say. Like it's not a very computery type language. Python is a, is a, is a more of a proper programming language. Um, so R is a bit, strange for people to learn um who have computer backgrounds and also 
it's not particularly performant. It's notoriously, um, it has all these things with, with basically, it, it, it's sort of wasteful of memory and CPU. Be, you know, being completely honest, unless you're a little bit clever, R out of the box will generally thrash your CPU and your RAM more than you really wanted to. Whereas I've, I've used Python out of the box and found actually it, it's generally written in, in a much more um, performant type way. Um, but it's really about the ecosystem. So the ecosystem of R for me is ggplot2 and shiny and R markdown. Um, so those being uh, a package to draw graphs, a package to make dashboards and a package to produce reports. Although R markdown is now being faced out in favor of Quarto, but um, it's a sort of similar idea. Um, and Python, I mean, I've my Python is pretty terrible, but I have written a bit of Python and I have people on my team who write Python. And the reason why we use Python is for text. In my opinion, Python is um, is pretty much on parallel for text. A, because text is very intensive on the computer side and therefore it's useful to have a language which doesn't you know, waste so much CPU and RAM as R does. But also just all the new cool stuff comes out in Python first. You can wait and see if someone makes it into R, but if you want to kind of be on reasonably on the cutting edge, and obviously text is quite new, so a lot of the methods people are using, they, you know, they're often from the last five years. So, for example, I discovered this thing top to vec, which I won't go into what that is because it probably take too long. Um, but it's just this fun way of looking at um, text, basically. Um, you know, there's no particular way of doing that. R. No one's released any implementation of that for R. Um, but there's a Python library right there. So even with my terrible Python, I can get the text in, uh, run it through, and it'll produce all this beautiful analysis. Um, so I think it's really, it, it's firstly that, and of course, the other thing to say, of course, is, is it's the community. Um, the Python community is, a, I mean, as you know, it's a general purpose programming language. So we, it's almost like more like the Python data science community rather than the Python community as a whole. The Python community as a whole is, is much larger. Um, but I think the R and the Python community for data science are both um, really good communities. They've got lots of very visible people, that, you know, very inclusive, they're very friendly to beginners. You know, this is out, really outside of NHSR and NHS Placom, I think are good examples of this. But I think in general, um, those communities have a lot of, um, you know, helpful people and they, you know, they, they, they're welcoming and, you know, all that kind of thing. So I think that's another reason, um, whereas you read horror stories about other programming languages, um, where there's all sorts of fights and terrible things going on. Amazing answers from, from everyone there. Um, moving on to the next question. So what advice would you give to people who are quite reserved in making the move towards these sorts of tools? Have a think and then I'll Put your hands up and we'll go to the first person. Go, Chris. So I think my advice, and I've probably hinted at it already, would be twofold, really. I think the first thing is to have a go, do something, because I think you will find that you will be... I mean, that's the thing. I didn't, I didn't like, use R and kind of disappear into a cave for nine months and then emerge fully formed an amazing R program and then save loads of time. I was saving time immediately. That's why I carried on doing it. Um, I mean, no one was kind of... There was no community. There was no encouragement. I didn't... I was just finding my way, really. Um, but I found when I started using R, I well, not immediately, but like I could see the gains. I could see that it was helping me. So I would advise to just get started. Use it in your real work. Don't kind of try and learn some weird thing off the internet. Find a small problem that you understand that you want to make better and solve it with R. And I'm pretty confident that by the end of that, you'll be like, oh, this is really, this is really something. And you can even start to sell it as well to the people in your organization. And the second thing I would say, and I'm sure it's implicit, but I'm going to say anyway, is just reach out to people. They, the, the general R and Python communities are very friendly. Um, and in particular, the NHS PyCom and the NHSR communities are also very friendly. Um, so you will definitely 
Uh, I mean, the thing I always say about NHSR, and it's, I'm very proud of it, and I'm sure it's true of NHS PyCom as well, is we love beginners and we love mistakes. That is honestly our favorite thing. It's easy to say, but it's true. Whenever a new person comes on the Slack and says, I've just this minute loaded R, people come running from all over the place to, to find, to because it's exciting, because we want to share the enthusiasm and we want to help them and we want to get them in. Um, so don't be shy. Don't be worried about making mistakes. Don't think, oh, I'm not good enough. I have to be this massive, you know, geek or any of that. We're all making mistakes. I make horrible mistakes all the time. You can read my Twitter if you don't believe me. Um, so just come in, have a go, ask for help. Don't be shy. Um, and I'm pretty sure within three months, you'll, you'll be really glad that you did. I thought that was going to be a selfless Twitter plug then. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, we'll go to you next. I think Chris, everything Chris said was completely spot on. I think what surprised me about learning Python and R was I learned Python first and I actually put off, I haven't told many people this, but I actually put off learning Python for many, many months because I thought, oh, Excel's enough, SQL's enough, you know, I don't have to learn this whole programming language. Um, until I was faced with a project, I actually had to learn Python. And what I realised is you can actually do so much with the basics. So I would say focus on the basics, as Chris said, focus on very small problem that you care about that might be automating an email that might be just loading in some data you'll be shocked how much other people don't know how to do it and once you have those basics covered you can start helping other people and start growing your knowledge another thing that isn't widely discussed is it actually does improve like your market value as an employee so there's a significant premium or salary increase and demand increase when you start learning programming languages. That's just the case. And actually your salary, um, your, you as a candidate is just much more competitive. So there is a benefit to you in terms of actual return on investment in terms of the actual finances and return on investment in terms of the NHS being able to tackle more interesting problems. Amazing point. Mark? Um, well, I think um, in addition to the excellent points that have been made already, um, one of the beauties of open source tools um, for people who are interested in technology or for people who want to further their career and improve their skills is that you can there's no restriction to downloading these these things at home um, and having a having a go at them on an old computer that it doesn't matter if it breaks um, you can take some risks and you can practice and you can just maybe rename all your photos or do something that doesn't really matter if it goes wrong um, and then you've gained some skills and you you, you know you've become more more employable as as, as mary says and um and and then you're you're in a better position to to, to have a go next time you're you're given a, a spreadsheet that's so large that it it, it sort of crashes Excel um, and and that's the time when you, you you think oh well I've had a go at this I I know how to install R, I know how to install Python and I know you know I've, I've dipped my feet in the water and and then you you can you might find a project at work that that, that kind of lends itself to to upskilling um, and to to continuing your professional development and your journey with um, with these excellent open source tools that are available. Chris? So I did read a great analogy once that I can't for the life remember who, who it was. So I'm sorry if, if you're listening to it and it was you. Um, it, when it was about, they were talking about SPSS, which is a statistical programming language, which is a statistical package, um, but it could be applied more generally. And they were saying basically, SPSS, it's like magic, like we were doing magic. And SPSS is like potions. So you go to the shop and they've got all these potions on the wall and you buy the one that you want. So you buy invisibility and you buy strength and you take them home. And whenever you want to use one, you drink it and, and there you go. And you can, you know, you can buy your potions and use them and, and you're quite happy. Um, but they said, whereas with R, it's like being a master magician. So you don't, there's no potions. 
you just you just imagine anything you do, you can just say the spell. And and I think I've heard that people. I mean, I certainly thought it myself, and I, I've heard it from many people. Is that's what's so exciting when you when you start to get your teeth into, it, and that will happen early is you you start to realize that you can do anything. You know, this is a general purpose language. They're both general purpose. So if you can imagine it, then you can do it. And that's so, so different from the, the you know, the lines and computer education in this, in this country is absolutely terrible, which is a completely different podcast. Um, but we're so used to being kind of funneled into these ditches of like, oh, you can only do that with this software. And and having these skills allows you to just to solve general problems. And as Mary says, from a sort of career point of view and a development point of view, that's that's very, very powerful. Some amazing points there, guys. Um, on to the next question. I think this is a, you know, a really a topic to, to go into as well. What can you do as a manager within the NHS to roll these tools out? We'll go to Chris. I mean, I could make hay with this to be honest but I'll, I'll be brief um the first thing you can do is you can ask better questions ask questions that are worthy of these tools and ask questions that are worthy of, of being answered in the first place um i think you can give people time and space to learn um there's a there's a brilliant cartoon that i saw once i think it's quite i think it's it's quite famous I saw one with a with a, a wheelbarrow with square wheels and someone's offering them a wheelbarrow with a circular wheel and they say they don't have time to install it and that's what i always think of um if you just give your staff just give them just a little bit of time and space to just have a breather and think um then that will that will make all the difference um and just make sure they've got the tools make sure that the it department will let them use this stuff um further down the line that you can get into conversations about deploying solutions and that can get a bit more i'm not going to get into all that um but you know you do these these tools will pay for themselves the effort and uh will will pay off um, so give your analysts the time and space and give them the tools and um, just let them get on with it. And also make sure that they can confer with each other, make sure that they've got time and space again, not only to, to sit and bash keys, but to talk and discuss and, you know, socialize and all that kind of thing. I believe Mary's Wi-Fi cut out. So I'm just going to ask the question once again, just for Mary as well. Um, so what can you do as a manager within the NHS to roll these tools out? I'll let you have a minute on that, Mary, and I'll come to Mark first. I think the um, the educational element that Chris had alluded to earlier is the most important thing, really. And um, finding also finding um, having a chat with your with your staff and finding out what their motivations are, what their career goals are, um, and and trying to find projects that will help them um, learn new skills that they can afford to make a few mistakes and take a bit longer than they would do normally on, um, and and kind of just just um, support their professional development and their their um, acquisition of new skills and I think if you take the time to do that then I think your team will um, really reap the benefits. Great stuff. And Mary? So I think it goes back to what we're talking about about incentives and as a manager um, there is a great incentive to you to support the development of your team and yourself and upskilling in these languages and sharing this information out because it actually makes you look really really good i have um i have seen a like so at the python community we've created a sort of leaderboard of all the open source repositories so like open source projects um, across the nhs basically and we've made like a leaderboard of which teams have created the most and that is a way of transparently showing which teams or which managers are enabling and actually encouraging 
people to use their skills and actually promote and share the technology and the project that, that they've built. And I think as a manager, there's incredible reward to yourself just reputationally for encouraging your team to think outside the box, to promote themselves, to um, share what they've learned and actually a massive um, benefit to, to you knowing that you can do everything you can to help your like employees and your staff develop in whatever way they can and actually in, in like empowering them to to use these tools to learn these tools will have unintended consequences in the most positive way because they will start having a certain confidence a certain different appreciation for ideas and a certain way of thinking that is quite rare in the nhs and is very very good for your team so i think there's a massive competitive advantage for teams and managers encouraging people to develop these languages but crucially they need to be given and like they need to be given the space and the independence to, to learn and make mistakes as we've said and to actually put this in practice thank you for that mary chris I think you want to follow up on that? Yeah, I was just going to say there's that old expression isn't there? no one ever got fired for buying Microsoft. And it's very true. No one ever did get fired for buying Microsoft. But I think I would encourage managers and leaders to have a bit of courage um, mm. and to, to try and push the envelope a bit. I think that's the problem is there are too many people who are just trying to kind of not get fired and not enough people trying to see what's over the next hill and try to kind of push things on. And that that's what's to make a truly great leader. And that's what will make a truly great um, NHS. Someone did briefly mention it, but I just want to say, just reiterate, um, I think we learned a lot of hard lessons during COVID, a lot of hard lessons about how actually the NHS faces a common enemy and it's disease and that we're all on the same team and we all need to collaborate and cooperate. And um, I think there was a lot of really, you know, that it pushed things on so much during that time. It's really, I mean, obviously it was a great tragedy that it happened, but I think there were, there were, there was a lot of really excellent work. I'm a little concerned at the moment, to be honest, that we seem to be sort of falling back to sleep. I mean, COVID obviously is still with us, um, but that incredible kind of pioneering, you know, spirit does seem to be rather fading back to the usual kind of integrated performance reports and the same old rubbish that we've always had. So I do just want to keep cracking out that story. Um, you know, we will always face the same common enemy and it's, you know, death, disease and misery. And let's work together um, as much as we can and as well as we can uh, to, you know, to, to give people the best experience and the best healthcare that we can. Definitely. I think just to summarise there, guys, you know, this is a digital leaders podcast specifically within the NHS. Some of those leaders will be listening, I would hope. Um, be open minded, have courage, you know, to utilise in these tools within your existing teams. Um, I suppose the final question, really, what we're going to finish on is, is what are the practical next steps for people to upskill or, or learn R and Python. I'll just give you a minute and then first one who puts hands up, we'll go to it. Go for it, Mark. So it's not like it used to be in the 90s when we were growing up. Um, there are so many really excellent online resources now and, and you don't need to pay to get access to them. Uh, some of the ones that spring to mind are, are Kaggle. Kaggle is excellent, highly recommended. Um, and um, would encourage anyone who doesn't know where to look to try and follow some of the, the Python um, tutorials to start with. Um, there's also a lot of um, sort of competitive coding type sites where you can try and solve problems and test your skills um, and you can um, definitely build up your skills quite quickly using tools like Hacker Rank, which is also a free um, site. Um, for those that prefer books, um, there's some really, really good ones. I think um, someone mentioned Hadley Wickham. There's a good R book written by him um, that's uh, that's really good. Um, so highly recommend that. 
Um, and then Python for Data Analysis is, is an excellent um, book for those looking to try and get um, up to speed enough with Python to be able to do things that you can uh, probably take for granted that your Excel skills will do. Um, and once you've read that book, you'll be able to use Python to solve most of those problems. Some great advice there, Mark and Chris. Yeah, it's funny. People often ask me this question, like, you know, they say, oh, well, I'm interested in R and how do I learn? And I, I don't really have a particularly good answer to it in the sense that I learned a very long time ago when everything was terrible and I'm aware. So, for example, the, the book that Mark just mentioned is R for Data Science. And I mean, I've seen it, I've, I know what's inside it, but I didn't learn from it. So I can't really talk about what it's like to learn from because I haven't learned from it. Um, although I know it's a good, good thing. I think the thing about learning is that everyone is really different on this. So for example, I hate, well, I don't hate them all, but I'm not really into training courses. I don't really want to sit in a room for seven hours and have anyone talk at me. I don't find it that helpful. I would much rather just, you know, play some music and just sit with the, you know, like a little, some challenges or something and just type away on a keyboard. But other people, they can't learn that way. It's much too unstructured. They don't know what to do next. And they really need like a sort of like an on-ramp of, you know, like this is the first. And the, the NHSR community has a one-day course which is entirely for that purpose. It's supposed to take you from, I've never written a single line of code in my life to I can, you know, operate R, I can load data, I can get things in and out and draw graphs and all that kind of thing. Um, and it's free and we get people, loads of people through that every single year, hundreds of people. Um, so I think I would say really, I would learn in, you know, the the way, the, the best way that, that fits you and just be aware that there are lots and lots and lots of different resources and different ways of learning. Um, and that there's a huge community out there that, that will help you. And I think that's probably the best because I'm still learning it. Just watching. I was watching a webinar the other day. I was watching someone coding. That, there's just there's so much to learn that it's almost impossible to kind of know where the next thing is going to come from. Whenever I do a shiny workshop, the most fun of the day isn't really learning shiny for me so much as just looking at kind of what buttons I press and how I've got things laid out. You know, there's just this incredible mass of stuff to learn. You never stop learning. That's partly why I love the job so much. Um, so just I think you know, be aware of what people are doing, be around people, Slack people, come to conferences, go to webinars, read people's code, read documentation, just try and immerse yourself and, you know, take what's useful um, and leave the rest. Great tips there, Chris. And Mary, what do you think? I think everything everyone's said so far is pretty much perfect. I think the main thing is just to be inspired. So we're going to have a conference in November, the NHSR conference with the Python track. And there's going to be dozens of speakers who are going to present how they've used Python and R to support their organisation to create impact for patients and the wider NHS and healthcare sector. So firstly, I just suggest becoming inspired. Secondly, I think this goes back to a point I was saying earlier, there is actually you can do a lot with just the basics just the basics and what I would encourage you to do is try to learn the fundamental programming basics, the fundamental basics of Python and start applying that practically with using an NHS data set. You can literally download an NHS data set from NHS Digital's website and start practicing loops, try practicing making a function straight away. You can do that right now. The third thing is join obviously the NHSR and NHS Python community slacks engage with us, see how we use these tools in our day-to-day -day work, and hopefully we can help you along the way. What I will do, guys, is leave the essentially the, the links to the respective groups um, underneath the, the posts that we put out in terms of the podcast. Um, does anyone have any sort of follow-up questions or follow-up answers, I suppose? I think the last thing I would say is being part of the Python community has honestly changed my life for the better. 
I have access to opportunities that I would never have access to as a very junior analyst at a, in a massive thousand people organization. And there is so much power in being able to learn and develop yourself and help to develop others. And I'm just one person. I don't have a degree. You do not need a degree to make make use of this stuff. You don't even need to be in a senior position. As long as you're interested about learning and care about what you're doing, you can make so much impact. So hopefully that helps people get started. Chris? Yeah, I just wanted to just mention, um, I mean, I think it's probably implicit throughout, but just to kind of call it out really, I think it's really excellent that we've got Python, you know, the Python community and the R community on here. As I say, there are still legions of people all over the internet just having sort of stupid fights about this whole R and Python thing. Um, I want people listening to this to, to know that the R community and the Python community are kind of great mates. We stand together. We've got our first joint conference coming up. Um, and we are, this is just the beginning. We're going to try and work more and more and more closely together. And I, I think, I think that's important because it helps us to signpost people to the right things and it helps us to generate the right, you know, it's an important thing to do anyway, but I, I, I think it's a really important symbolic gesture um, to show, you know, power, it, it's, the, it's the power of collaboration basically. And it's the power of, you know, because we're united by the, well, I was talking about culture before, that's what unites us. Um, it, it's, it, it's not even really, oh, we all write code. We all sit around and write code. It's not that really. There are actually lots of communities that write code. The thing that unites us is that we believe that by being open and collaborating and being brave and doing new things and sharing and helping, we can make things better. And, you know, and that's what we're doing. Excellent. So that was our final question, our sort of final discussions, guys. Um, I just wanted to also say on the podcast, you know, big thank you to, to Chris, to Mark and to Mary for joining us today. You've been, you know, up there with one of the best panellists that I've had involved um, we've discussed some really important topics. So just wanted to put that out there and say a, a massive thank you for getting involved.